Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Ansaro, Managing Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. What can hospitals and health systems expect if they're looking ahead to their projected drug spending in 2022? Vizient recently released its Summer 2021 Pharmacy Market Outlook. The firm analyzed its members' purchasing patterns and predicts a 3.1% increase in pharmaceutical spending next year, with oncology drugs accounting for about a quarter of that increase. The report also discusses increasing competition from biosimilars, including the recent approval of insulin glargine as an interchangeable biosimilar, the practice of white bagging, and other issues. On this episode of Manage Carecast, we speak with Stephen Lucio, Senior Principal, Pharmacy Solutions for Vizient, about the report, which also discusses the continued impact of COVID-19 on healthcare spending. Thank you for joining us today, Stephen. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So Vizient came out with its latest uh, Outlook report. Uh, you call it the 2021 report, but it's really looking forward to 2022, correct? That is correct. Every iteration of the pharmacy market outlook, which we produce, and that's twice a year that we publish this forecast, it is looking at the period of six to 18 months from the date of publication. So that for this time, since it's July of, or was July of 2021, we're looking at calendar year 2022. And I guess the first finding that I noticed uh, is that drug spending by your clients will increase by 3.1% next year. That's the estimate. And my question is, what effect does the ongoing pandemic have on that? I think at this point, we thought we'd be out of the pandemic or getting out of it. But in some parts of the country, that's certainly not the case. So what effect does COVID-19 have on that? That's a great question. And and yes, it's unfortunate that we are not completely out of the woods. And it appears that that is something that healthcare providers, our members are going to have to continue to manage going forward. The it's it's also very important. It's a great question because the 3.1% is our analysis based upon our members spend in terms of what drug pricing behavior is likely to be again for the next six to 18 months. So looking at our members' top 85% of spend, we would say that for those medications, if we were to look ahead to next year, they're going to be 3.1% more expensive, just taking into account the normal growth of pricing and the normal inflation associated with medications. Now, not all, not all medications increased. Uh, some are decreasing, but if we look at the preponderance of them, the growth is going to be higher so that we're looking in aggregate at a 3.1% increase. Now, you bring up a very good point that given the pandemic and how people are confronting that in different areas of the country, definitely we see different hotspots. It's really important for people to look at the specific information as it pertains to their organizations. And so in addition to the overall forecast, we have an analytics tool that helps members take the projections that we've provided and apply it to their specific spend. And so we encourage people to look at that on a quarterly basis or 
periodically so they can continue to adjust as they face different dynamics. And obviously the, the biggest one that is presenting the greatest challenge right now is the pandemic, but it could be their normal growth, maybe their return quite substantially in the extent to which they've been able to recover their function. Uh, other organizations. So this is, we have an overall projection, but we always encourage our members to, to look at the detail of it and to in, interpret how that, what that means for their specific practices. Some things in this report don't appear to change very much from year to year because we've covered this report before, like the impact of oncology drugs, specialty drugs, the cost of uh, Humira. But in this report, your company is also now including a section on diabetes medications, not only insulin, but the SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 agonists. Can you discuss why that's important to your members and why it was added? Absolutely. The exact reason is the amount of spend that is occupied by those, those categories, as well as the fact that those products, and you mentioned all the, the salient ones, the insulins, the GLP-1s, the SGLT-2s, and, and every other acronym under the sun, all of those are extremely influential products for our members, really regardless of the site of care. In our Outlook, we show how the spending looks overall on the inpatient side, on the non-acute side, and it's not exactly, but it's highly similar, the alignment of those medications. Uh, insulin is at the top, but it's followed closely by those different categories. And so since you're confronted with not only tried and true medications like the insulins, but newer products, regardless of where the patients are being treated, it, it is critically important. And given what we would anticipate with just the continued progression of diabetes as being a, a tremendous challenge in terms of, of healthcare, uh, you know, costs and of disease prevalence, we need to know about it. And then many of these agents, these newer agents, the GLP-1s, the SGLT-2s, they are being endorsed for utilizations beyond just the, the foundational standpoint of uh, insulin manage or diabetes management of taking care of people who are, who are diabetic. We're looking at the impact on cardiovascular outcomes, heart failure. And so given the growth and the diversity of indications for which these products are used, as well as the expense that's associated with them, uh, we knew we had to start weighing in and articulating, you know, what is the impact going forward for these medications? The projected increased spend on diabetes medications for, as you said, not just diabetes, but these other indications, what is that projected to be like? Again, it, it varies depending upon the specific category, but if you look in aggregate, we were projecting or we are projecting a 2.63% rate. Now, again, that is not huge and like the 3.1% overall is not extraordinary, you know, you, that's not double digits, but if you consider how much spend overall is associated with pharmaceuticals, and then again with the medications used to treat managed diabetes, it is, it is quite extraordinary. You know, we're talking about mil millions and tens of millions of dollars, and that's based upon, again, just pricing growth alone. That's not based upon the increased utilization that we would expect given the fact that more people are being diagnosed with diabetes, and again, that these drugs are used for circumstances beyond just the specific issues uh, associated with glucose and, and you know, glycemic management. So given just 
the general price increase, especially for the newer medications, again, the GLP-1s, the SGLT-2s, the DPP-4s, uh, we're projecting substantial growth because these are still novel molecules, uh, their utilization is becoming more prominent, and those are recipes for increased pricing as we go forward. Looking at something else, and it's related to diabetes, more payers are requiring the use of biosimilars uh, when they are available to hold the line on costs. And last week, as your report was coming out, your, um, re your report mentioned that this would happen, Biocon Biologics uh, insulin was cleared as the country's first interchangeable biosimilar. How are clients reacting and have there been any noticeable changes yet? Thank you. That, that's a great question. And again, that's a topic that's so near and dear to our hearts here at Vizient, trying to increase the understanding of biosimilars and encourage their adoption. As of yet, it's been so soon since that announcement was made. We've not seen any changes. And part of that is because the version of Simgly, which is the first interchangeable biosimilar and the first true biosimilar for an insulin product is not yet available. We're looking at later this fall as to when that product might actually be marketed. But it is an historic event and it's extremely significant because we do strongly hope that the introduction of interchangeable products, especially for these medications that are more patient and health, you know, patient administered as opposed to healthcare administered, will be more advanced by the interchangeability designation. Uh, for some biosimilars that are health care provider administered, we've seen reasonable growth, you know, some of the oncology related medications, but then for others uh, like the drug Remicade and the competitors for that, it's been quite tepid. And so every advancement that is made from a biosimilar standpoint is extremely important. And so testing to see if this interchangeability designation ultimately makes a difference and does improve the uptake and the reception from a payer standpoint, it is going to be critically important to, to watch as that product comes to market because the previous version or the presently marketed version of Simgly that was not designated as biosimilar uh, because there's a version that currently exists. It's not biosimilar, uh, it's a separately uh, related biologic, uh, had very poor payer coverage and it's that national market share is less than 1%. So the, the hope obviously is that it's this different version uh, that has been endorsed as interchangeable by FDA will be able to move you know, beyond that and as more interchangeable biologic and biosimilars for insulins progress that it will help this category again that, that is, is strongly, strongly growing. And I would say the, the other thing that we do hope this sets a good pathway for the introduction of other medications that are more self-administered, obviously the biggest one being Humira that again has that 2023 date uh, that we hope is coming and we hope we'll see the introduction of multiple biosimilars and maybe some interchangeable iterations of it. But the example that now we have with Simbly, hopefully will give us some indication of, of what that future might hold. Might there be one or two other interchangeable designations coming out this year or early next year? There is a possibility. There are other insulins that are in the queue, both long acting and rapid acting. And so, yes, we're, we're monitoring them very closely. Of course, many things can happen. And there have been, you know, other applications for biosimilars that have not gotten to the full designation. The hopeful thing with any of these 
products that if they do get the approval designation from an, an insulin standpoint, a biosimilar interchangeable perspective, there should not be any patent issues that delay their entry. So if we do get some more, you know, whether it's again on the long acting side or the rapid acting side, they should come to market fairly soon unlike the, the Humira biosimilars that have been approved for several years and have still not gotten into the market. One payer measure to hold the line on costs that has not gone over so well is white bagging. Um, what were the findings of the survey you did earlier this year? That's a great topic. And we will be, we included some information in our pharmacy market outlook, and we are going to be including more regarding that as we release the totality of our survey results. But the thing that we heard, you know, overarching is the challenge in the additional waste and workload that is created by this process of white bagging. And, and for people who may not be fully cognizant of white bagging, white bagging is a circumstance where an hospital outpatient infusion practice, a physician infusion practice, rather than being able to buy a medication for the purpose of administering it to any patient that is treated within their facility, has to get patient-specific medication from a third-party specialty pharmacy and then administer it to a patient. So it represents a disruption in care there is a tremendous amount of additional work that is required in order to make that actually function. And so because of that, even though this process is usually induced or, or introduced as a way to lower cost, or that's the intent of it, what we have found and continue to see with our members is that it really doesn't, if you look at the totality of expense required to, to manage the complexities and to make sure that the product arrives on time or that the product that you got was actually the thing that is appropriate for the patient. And again, no one is trying to do the wrong thing, but frequently with the patients that get these medications. So they, these are patients who have cancer, who have rheumatoid arthritis, who have other chronic debilitating issues, their, their treatment changes and it progresses. And so if you are reliant upon a third party that is attempting to you know, provide this uh, medication to you outside of your normal inventory management process, that medication at the time that it's received may no longer be accurate, or it may be the wrong dose because the patient's therapy has changed. Uh, frequently for oncology patients, their therapy is predicated on the lab work that's done when they first come into the clinic. And if that lab work is different, or if they're doing better or worse, then the choice of treatment might be different. And so then if you have to delay their therapy in order to get product from a third party, in order to then take care of them, then they may have to come back for treatment, their treatment could be delayed. And those were all things that, that we, we were encountering. And so at a high level, we asked specifically how many of those circumstances or how frequently those circumstances occur, uh, to what extent have you experienced a medication not arriving in time or it no longer being correct or prompting to delay in therapy or even potentially being wrong. And of the people who responded to our survey, 92% of them said that they had encountered that experience. So again, that is, that is extremely high, but it's extraordinarily challenging. And it really resonates with what our members have been telling us over the years that although this is something that on paper would look like it would help us, it really doesn't. It creates more complexity. And then 
a, a comparable uh, question that we asked is from an inventory management standpoint, to what extent have you experienced challenges in terms of having to manage patient specific in, you know, uh, inventory separately from the rest of your inventory, uh, medication being delivered to the wrong location across uh, a health system, of not having the refrigeration capacity to manage all of these individual prescriptions. And the respondents, 95% uh, of them said that they had encountered those circumstances. So when 92% of the respondents have encountered an issue, either acquiring product or with the operational or safety issues, 95% have had challenges on that side. Again, that's just additional work and additional waste. And that just creates more challenge for, again, highly complex patients who really have to have their care very much personalized and monitored very closely. And so we are gonna be releasing more information about this circumstance in the upcoming weeks. And again, we're not trying to, to cause unnecessary alarm, but when we're monitoring the cost of pharmaceuticals so closely, we need to understand what drives the best care, the most efficient care, and creates the least disruption for the patients who are obviously the end users. And so that's why it's so important that we've included it both in the outlook as well as in some of the communications we have coming later. Do you know off the top of your head what percent or proportion of white bagging and then brown bagging where the medication is delivered to someone's home and they have to carry it? How, how uh, prevalent is that now? Is that the majority or is it still in the minority and it's growing? The Those items, we believe, based upon our survey results, the white bagging and the brown bagging still would represent the minority. But as we have confronted and have seen, particularly this year, numerous payers have begun to implement the primarily the white bagging consideration for hundreds of drugs that would be covered and administered in the outpatient infusion setting. And so when these national players are increasingly doing this, then it presents a challenge for, again, the, the end user, the providers. But it, it's, not the, it's not predominant, but even in its minority consideration, again, it creates numerous challenges, you know, much greater than, than the extent to which it, it you know, probably occurs from a prescription to prescription standpoint. And again, whether it is making sure the patient knows that they have to give their endorsement for the third party specialty pharmacy to ship the medication to the clinic for it to be administered, or whether it is the work that our providers have to do to, to make sure the medication is there, it's the workload is disproportionate, again, to the potential value that has been articulated previously and, in fact, incurs additional cost. And then another uh, item that's mentioned in your report, the use of um, CAR-T therapy being given in outpatient centers. Is that that's still the minority of cases? Is that growing? And what comes into play there? A absolutely. Uh, yes. The use of CAR-T or these immunotherapies, which again have been revolutionary uh, and for certain patient populations and in which there is so much investment of investigation to try and find other treatments to, to help people who people who didn't have a choice or didn't have a chance for a very good outcome, maybe to prevent the need for having to conduct a bone marrow transplant. So, you know, we're talking about truly remarkable things. Obviously, there's substantial expense in, in, in the market outlook. We talk about some of those increased prices that we've seen for, for those therapies. But you bring up a good point because 
to the extent that we can provide care in the outpatient setting where it is potentially less costly, where it's more comfortable and convenient for the patient is, is a tremendous thing. And that is one element that we're seeing with especially our academic medical centers who are piloting programs to deliver this complex, uh, highly complicated therapy in more of an outpatient environment. And so, so we are seeing that, especially now because of the pandemic, we're seeing a transition to investigate all types of oncology care in a home infusion setting or in an outpatient setting, even beyond CAR-T therapy. And that brings a lot of interesting dynamics into place because when you're talking about home infusion, obviously there is, or non-acute care, obviously there's the potential for less harm to the patient, less burden, less inconvenience for them. And during the pandemic, less opportunity for them to come into a place where people might be infected you know, with, with the virus and, and present an, an extraordinary risk for them. But there's also considerations because a lot of these therapies, not all of them are toxic and they're hazardous. And so you've got to be very mindful of what you're, you're doing and what you're introducing into a patient's home or to a circumstance that is, is less controlled. So for CAR-T therapy, for other chemotherapy products, oncology-related treatments, we are I'm going to see continued migration, but it's going to also have to include that analysis of how do we ensure the highest level of safety and monitoring, not only for the patient receiving the therapy, because some of these treatments can necessitate a great deal of intervention if, if a patient has a negative reaction to them, and also how do we protect the environment and, and others who would be in the home, other caregivers, uh, from any hazards associated with the medications and the treatments that are being delivered. So definitely it is being looked at, and I suspect growth will be there. It's also going to have to include these additional considerations that maybe don't occur to the same extent with the more routine therapies that we see delivered in an outpatient environment in a patient's home. And so it's gonna to have to be very, very closely monitored going forward. Interesting. Um, is there anything else I forgot to ask you or that you want to add about the report? I think that one of the other, the biggest big elements about the report, and we I talked about it from the advocacy standpoint is the, uh, from the white banking standpoint is the element of advocacy uh, because one of the, the biggest things is that there's so much going on from the standpoint of you've got to provide care and obviously the pandemic is, is present and everyone is concerned about cost of medications and the question remains well what do we do what's the best thing to do about it and so in this report we talk about the strategies that members need to take in order to articulate what truly does drive the best care for patients and the best outcome. And that requires obviously change on, on everyone's perspective, but we wanna make sure that if we do things, they actually provide a benefit. So again, the white bagging was intended or is intended to provide a benefit, but as we look at it in more detail, it, it really doesn't. Uh, many of the strategies that we've implemented you know, for, for you know, managing other issues, drug shortages, we really have to focus our attention on things like the essential medications, you know, the things that are truly important. And so all of these elements have an advocacy narrative to make sure that the incentives that our federal government or state governments or, or anyone put into place really are focused on the areas that provide the greatest benefit for 
patients because they are the end users and really help providers deliver that high quality care that that everyone deserves, that we deserve. And so whether it is focusing on essential medications and increasing the transparency and the reliability of the supply chain or making sure things that we put into place to minimize the impact of, of high cost medications don't incur additional costs and additional complexities that would make patient care you know, more challenging. So again, we, we promote and talk about these things in our outlook and we continue to do that in collaboration with our colleagues in DC who help us with many of these policy initiatives. And we're always you know, looking to encourage our members and others to, to take on this mantle uh, so we can provide true solutions that really bring about benefit uh, for, again, the, the end user, the patient of which we all are at one point or the other. Since you mentioned it, I have to bring it up and it wasn't mentioned in your report, but since you mentioned the supply chain, if we have another surge, you know, more widespread than in regional areas, but if we have another surge that continues, say, into the fall, where are we with the supply chain with um, the equipment that your clients use? and the supplies and the drugs and the PPE and all of that. Has it improved since 18 months ago? Yes, it, ha it has improved. Yes. And I think we could take, uh, you know, comfort in that. And again, it's because of the hard work of really everyone involved, you know, including the government, including the states, in, including, you know, health and human services, and including organizations like Vizian. So the work that we, in fact, started before the pandemic around essential medications and our Nova Plus enhanced supply offering to build in more resiliency into the marketplace uh, and predict and try and anticipate the need for additional capacity that has continued to work and it's continued to give organizations greater levels of confidence. And so Yes, we do expect it would be and it will be better. Again, obviously the biggest thing is if we uh, continue to help our, our member organizations and if they're able along with other, uh, you know, outreach, you know, retail pharmacies uh, to be able to vaccinate more people. Uh, and so, you know, we're continuing to work with our members to share those best practices and to learn from each other. But yes, uh, from the standpoint of PPE and from, you know, the critical essential medications, we do think it will be better. It has been better but it sure would be ideal if we didn't have to, to put it to the fullest test. And so, you know, but, but if that is the case, you know, we are fully aligned with our supply partners. We're working to build the additional, uh, you know, protections in there to have inventory housed here in the United States for our membership. So that way, if they do run into, you know, uh, a greater challenge they would have anticipated, it won't be the negative consequence that, you know, was seen back when we first had the initial outbreak of the pandemic. Well, those are all of my uh, questions this evening. So thank you so much for joining me. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the time. For all of us at AGMC, thanks for listening. For more about this issue, visit agmc.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at agmc.com or follow us on Twitter at agmc underscore journal. And if you like Managed Carecast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.